that your spirit would speak through me, that I would get out of the way, and that your word would just uh, be clear, uh, that we would have a better picture of you, your beauty, your majesty, your glory, and, and who you are. So I just lift up this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Morning, guys. So I'm just going to start by saying I'm going to try not to yell at you guys this time. I know uh, I made some people nervous, like, like that guy right there. He was getting ready to go into police mode. <laughs> so I apologize for that, and I just, uh, just wanted to make an em- emphasis on God's Word. So we're going to be in, in Hebrews 4, but before we get to Hebrews 4, um, we're going to go back to Hebrews 3. Because I don't know if you guys have noticed that as you go through the book of Hebrews, a lot of the sections end in the previous chapter that flows into the next chapter. So when Brother Adam did Hebrews 3, uh, the very end of Hebrews 3 was actually part of Hebrews 4. So that's the section I'm going to kind of be in. It's going to be Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 first, but before we go there... I want to start in Hebrews 3. So we're, we're kind of going back a little bit further, but um, I, just, I just want to kind of lay the foundation so that we can kind of get a, a picture and see how the writer is, is flowing, flowing uh, with what he's saying. So uh, this was a little bit of a challenging book for me to go through. Uh, I'm just going to warn you now, there's, there's, there's quite a bit that I have. Um, so we're just going to try to roll through it. I'm just I'm going to do my best, Lord willing, to just point out some of the things that the writer is trying to tell us. So first, we're going to go to Hebrews 3, 3, 3 through 6, just for a brief moment. I'm just going to read it. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the writer of Hebrews is making a point that Christ is greater than Moses, just as a builder of a house is greater than the house itself. For we believers are God's house, a place of dwelling. Ephesians 2.19 tells us, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So how does God build this house? Hebrews 3, 7 through 11 tells us. Therefore, 
As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The Holy Spirit says today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today. Today, today. And he repeats this, the writer repeats this verse three times in chapters three and in four, so it has some great implications. So what about today? If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not keep thinking that angels and Moses are greater than Christ. Do not be like those in the rebellion who proved or showed in the wilderness for those 40 years that they always go astray in their hearts and have not known God's ways. Since or because God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter his rest. So what was this rebellion? We have to go back to the book of Exodus. So again, I just want to lay a groundwork first by going back to before the rebellion to give us a better picture. And this was after the time Joseph, uh, this was after Joseph, Joseph's time in Israel and the Israelites' time in slavery in Egypt. So really quick, Exodus 1. Taskmasters were placed over them, the people of Israel, and they were afflicted with heavy burdens. So they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work of the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the baby sons of Israel were to be killed because the number of the people was too great. And then Exodus 2 gives the people's response. So remember now, I'm just trying to lay a groundwork so that we can kind of get into what the rebellion was. Exodus 2, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And we know that God answered by the things that followed. They, the people, seen him, seen God, and they experienced him through the leadership of Moses. The people began to look, the people began with what looked like belief in God. Crying out to God to rescue them from slavery putting the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts, crossing the Red Sea. They experienced God firsthand with their own eyes. They saw his working among them. They saw God's salvation at the night of the Passover. They saw his power to open the Red Sea and rescue them. They saw his judgment upon the Egyptians as the Red Sea was closed over them. They experienced his leading by day through the cloud and the pillar of fire by night. They received him, or they received from him water from the rock, 
food from heaven, miracles, signs, wonders, thunders, and lightnings. Oh yeah, they saw the working of God and they experienced the Lord. As they were led by Moses, they experienced the Lord. And they were led by Moses to the entrance of the land that God promised them. But experiencing God does not equal belief in God. Because ultimately, they refused to go into the land because of their unbelief. And right now, I'm using this word experience because eventually, in chapter 6, we're going to see a people who look like people who believe. They were once enlightened, tasting the heavenly gifts, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the Word of God and the powers and the, of the age to come. Now keep, keep all that in mind as we continue. Hebrews 3 continues and tells us, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we, believers, we take care, we take heed, we, we beware, we be aware, be attentive, look intently at the example just given to us by those who rebelled. Experiencing God and beginning well with God and yet having an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God just as those in the rebellion did. So what do we do to keep from falling away from the living God? Verse 13, we exhort, we encourage, we admonish, we walk with, we rebuke in love, we edify one another every day as long as it's called today. For what reason? So that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin or believe the lie, but hold and cling to the truth. For those who share in Christ will hold their original confidence firm to the end. We will begin with God, and we will end with God because of God. Or how Romans 1.17 says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Beginning in faith and ending in faith. Because the just live by faith. Now the, now the writer returns back to what he's talking about in verse 7 through 11, reminding us of the rebellion. And again, throughout, the cha throughout chapters 3 and 4, we can see the emphasis he's making about this rebellion and the description of it. Their rebellion, their hard hearts the provoking of the Lord, their disobedience, their sin, their not resting, and their unbelief. So, so listen for that as we continue. And this is, <clears throat> this is verse 15 through 19. And it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. They were led by Moses. And look how many fell in the wilderness. Again, don't place Moses above Christ. So how did this rebellion look? Remember what I had mentioned earlier, how they were crying out to the Lord. They were asking God. They were praying to God. They were seeking God, save us from our slavery. And this is, this is the portion where it's going to talk about their rebellion. It's Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 2 through 11. It's, it's quite a bit, but I'm, I'm just going to read it to kind of just give us a, a picture of everything. And, and remember, remember all that they experienced by the faithful hand of God up until this very point. You know, the crossing of the Red Sea. The salvation from in the, at the Passover night. The judgment upon the Egyptians. This is Numbers 14, 2 through 11. And it says, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of, of the congregation of, of the people of Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jeph Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregations said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, all that I've shown them, all that they experienced, they witnessed, and they saw. The people thought, Oh, how much better it was back in Egypt. They longed for, and they missed the life back in Egypt. Failing to remember how bitter and hard it was as slaves, and that, and that it, was, it, it was Pharaoh who wanted their wives and their little ones to become prey. This, I think, would be a form of the deceitfulness of sin that is spoken of in, in Hebrews 3.13. Their unbelief was a refusal to believe in the goodness of the Lord. His promises, His protection, his salvation, 
all that they had already experienced, all that they, are, they had already seen him do, all that the Lord had already shown them. For us, there's a picture and a type here. Egypt is a picture of sin and our slavery to it. It's a picture of our inability to do anything else other than obey the slave master that is over us. No rights, no power, no will, and no ability to do otherwise. This example would be like us coming to the Lord, knowing the Lord, walking with Him, seeing the great work He has done in us, and experiencing His goodness, but still longing for, wanting, and missing the life before Christ came in. And the life of our slavery to our sin. Do we do that? Do we long for the life before Christ? Do we miss our old lifestyle? The life of our slavery to sin? Do we miss the sin that we once indulged in? Test yourself in this. We should test ourselves in this. Because Romans 6, 6.20 tells us, because when you or when we were slaves to sin, we were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit did we get at that time from the things which we are now ashamed? But now having been set free from sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. When we think of our life before Christ, it should make us cringe. And we should, be re and we should, we should be reminded of that shame. But don't stay there too long. Because it's an opportunity, it's a great opportunity to come to the one that we can praise and worship and thank because he saved us from that slavery to sin. It's an opportunity to worship. Saved from our cruel taskmaster and slave driver. So that we would become slaves of the one who is gentle, lowly of heart, kind, loving, powerful, merciful, gracious, forgiving, and promises an eternal inheritance and a place of true rest. So now we're finally in Hebrews 4. So Hebrews 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, and there's a lot of therefores in this, in this book. Um, a lot of therefores, a lot of since then. So he's, he, he, from previous verses, he's trying, to, he's trying to make this statement that just continues to flow throughout the chapter. So therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So there are those who stand at the entrance of God's rest as Israel stood at the entrance of the promised land. The promise of his rest still stands today as the Holy Spirit has already said today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
But what is this fear in verse 1? What should we fear? Fear what? Fear not reaching that rest. Fear unbelief. Fear not believing the promises of God. Fear shrinking back to slavery. Exodus 34 tells us, 34.6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love for thousands. Oops, sorry, I messed this one up. Keeping his steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the same good news that was given to them, which is also given to us. But we know now that this good news is Christ himself, and he is the one who fulfills this promise. But for Israel, this promise of rest did not benefit them because they did not have faith. They did not believe, and because of their unbelief, they were unable to enter. But what is this rest that we're talking about? This is the definition of rest. To cease or to stop one's working. To cease from laboring and striving for something. It's a place of calm, security, and trust in something or someone. Rest is good, for we all need it. We need rest from the physical mental and emotional demands of this life. We rest physically so we can work physically. Rest is needed to be able to work to the best of our ability and our capacity. Can you, and so imagine for a second, not being able to rest or sleep and having to put forth and exert all the energy and mental capacities needed to get through a day. If we don't rest, this is an impossible thing for we cannot function without rest. But this is exactly the way God created us. God created us as creatures that need rest. We have an inability to work without resting. Or another way of saying it, we must rest so that we can work. Remember what Brother Nick taught not too long ago from Genesis. Adam's first full day was a day of rest. Then he worked. But there is something much more important than the physical rest needed for physical demands. We have a God who demands obedience, righteousness, holiness, perfection. For these are are all the things that he is. And none of us can accomplish that. So what hope do we have? Matthew 11 tells us, 11.28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This rest that we've been reading of in Hebrews was not a place of a promised land, but a rest in a promised person. The person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, God himself. We rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that encompasses it, but is not limited to the fact that we rest in his miraculous birth. 
We rest in his perfect and sinless life, fulfilling the very law of God that we failed at. We rest in his death on the cross for the payment of our unpayable debt of sin. And we rest in his resurrection, which proved his sinless life, for death has no power and dominion over him because death, eternal death, is for sinners. And Christ had no sin. And so moving on to Hebrews 4, 3. This is uh, 3 through... 3 through 10. This was challenging for me. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you the short answer and then what I was able to find. So I'm just going to read real quick Hebrews 4, 3 through 10. It says, For we who believe enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, In the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also also rested from his works as God did from his. So the short answer. The short answer to this is the rest that God spoke of, again, was not the place where Joshua led the people. This rest is a person. It's Christ. The fact that most of Israel did not enter the promised land is a picture of those who do not enter God's true rest from working for for his favor and salvation. We can't earn it. We have an inability to earn it. But this is what I want to focus on really quick. And Craig has said, well, I'm amongst friends, fellow brethren and believers, so I'm hoping that what I got from this, you guys won't throw me out of here. But um, so I want to focus on the word from in verse three, just for a moment, and I'll tell you why. So the word from in the Greek is the word apo, which means a time separate or before. See, the struggle that I was having was that when I read that portion, that they shall not enter his rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. When I read that, I'm thinking, okay, well, from meaning from that point from that moment that God created the foundation of the world. But the word from, apo, in the Greek means a time separated or before. So we could read verse 3 in this way. So God swore in his wrath that they shall not enter his rest, although his works were finished, a time separated or before the foundation of the world. And I mention this because of all the scriptures that we have that talk about 
our predestination, our election. So like right here, Romans 8, for whom God foreknew and predestined, we are those whom God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those whom he calls, justifies, and glorifies. Those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1.4. Those whom God predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.5 and 11. Those whom God saved and called with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So you see, for us, there is written in God's word, those who rest in God and those who don't or won't. Because God has declared and ordained these things, a time separate and before the foundation of the world. Romans 9 confirms God's election and predetermination of those who rest in him and those who don't. And this is speaking of Jacob and Esau. Verse 11, though they had not been born and had, not, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of, of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, work, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And, for, and, and this is his divine purpose, verse 22. Desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he, which he has. And listen, vessels of mercy prepared beforehand or in advance or in a time separated or before the foundation of the world. So we see there is no entrance into God's rest without him ordaining it. He chooses, and all that he does is right. And there is no flaw in him. And all that he has ordained is for his good and perfect purposes. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is in control and sovereign over all. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He is over all and in all. He declares who rests in him and who does not. But oh, what a blessing it is for us to be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All this and so much more is his work. His work, not ours, not the angels, not Moses, but his and for his glory. And then on the seventh day, he rested. You see, by the seventh day, everything was done. 
everything, our call, our justification, and our glorification. From eternity in the past to eternity in the future and everything in between, it is finished. From the planning of salvation between the Godhead before anything was created to the creation of the angels and every and even the ones that would fall, to the creation of the universe and everything in it, to the creation of Adam and Eve, sin that would come in and the curse that would result affecting everything and everyone, a Savior who would come to redeem a people for God's own possession, a body of believers called, justified, and glorified, the building of the church through the apostles, a new heaven and a new earth, no more sin, no death, no pain, no tears. Believers in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. All this and infinitely more is God's work. And he rested on the seventh day. So I hope you can kind of see where I'm going with it. It's all done. And we who believe have already been glorified. We're already there with Him. Enjoying Him. And seeing Him as He is. We've already been perfected with new bodies. There is a new heaven and a new earth. God sees the beginning and the end all in one glance. For He is outside of time and space. But for us who are within His time and space are moving towards what is already finished. This is a hope that we can cling to, especially when we struggle. So we praise Him. Praise Him for this. Praise Him that it is done and finished and rest in Him and rest in that truth. But if all that we've looked at regarding rest in God, why verse 11? Why do we strive? Right? That's what verse 11 says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive, be diligent, endeavor, labor, work. Why strive? I thought we were to rest. Why work? I thought we were resting. There is a work for us to be done. Listen to it. And these are all throughout Hebrews. Well, at least from verses 1 forward. Strive or work. Be diligent. Pay close attention to what we've heard, Hebrews 2. Don't neglect the great salvation, Hebrews 2.3. Consider Jesus, Hebrews 3. Do not harden your hearts. Take care against an, an unbelieving heart. Exhort one another every day against the deceitfulness of sin. And fear the unbelief that will keep you from the promised rest. This is done moment by moment, hour by hour, and day by day, as we trust and we rest in God's promises. As He leads us to the real and eternal promised land. I believe that this striving... This diligence, this toiling, this laboring, and this working happens not to rest in Him, but because we are resting in Him. We don't strive 
to rest. We strive because we are resting. Because we are resting in the finished work of Christ. And because of the finished work of Christ, we can now strive, toil, and work. Not for our salvation, but because of our salvation through Christ. And because we are saved and resting in the promises of God, we can now work out this salvation. We can work out what God has already worked into us through Christ. We can show forth our faith and rest in Christ by our works. We show our faith by our works. And how do we do that? Verse 12, the Word, the Word of God. Verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we, we must give an account. And literally, this word, the word, means God breathed, or God is breathing, or God's breath. It's alive, it's active, it's living. It's active, it's active, which means that it has an effect, a purpose, and it's powerful. It speaks. Isaiah 55 says, It will not return void or empty, but it will accomplish all that the Lord sends it out. For us, the Word has at least two purposes. There's, there's, there's a lot more, but there's, there's two purposes that the word has, kind of like a double-edged sword has two sides. It will either lead us to and draw us closer to Christ, who is the living word, the word made flesh, or it will push us further away and deeper into sin. Mainly in this context, we're talking about, are we, in this context, basically we're, we're talking about are we walking in faith when we read the word are we walking are we walking in faith are we trusting are we believing are we resting in him and his promises and for those who are drawn closer to the lord by the word our striving begins here we focus we read we study we rightly divide we meditate we hear we listen we pray it we let it get rooted and grounded in our hearts and we build our lives upon it. And as we treat it more valuable than gold or silver and as we treat it like a, like a treasure and sweeter than honey and become not just hearers of the word but doers, like a sword, the Lord begins to cut away and circumcise the heart of the things that are not fitting. So may we be sensitive to the Word of God and the purposes for which He sent it. And then just closing out, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, therefore, since the rest of God is still available today because of Jesus, our great high priest who has made propitiations for our sin, satisfying the righteous wrath of God and the righteous requirements of God's law so that we can rest and hold fast to this confession. The Lord knows our weaknesses, for He has ordained that we have specific weaknesses. He knows where we struggle and where we continue to fall short. He knows where and when we fail to rest in Him and His promises. But we have this great high priest who knows every weakness and every struggle we've had, and he knows it intimately because he has been there and he has been tempted as we are, but with much greater weight than any of us has ever experienced. And yet, he was without sin. So again, he satisfies the wrath of his Father and the righteous requirements of the law so that we can rest in him and come with confidence to the throne room of grace to receive mercy and find grace that is perfectly fitted, timed, and given by God when he sees fit and when he ordains it. Um, I've got a little bit more, so, but I just kind of wanted to end there and just kind of ask, you know, do we rest in other things? Like, I'll just share real quick. I, I rest, I'm, I find myself able to rest in God for his salvation, but I struggle to rest in him for my sanctification because there's still so much of the old man left. There's still so much struggle with sin. So for us, do we rest? Do we rest in him? Brother, uh, again, thank you so much for, for bringing that and, and reminding us of the plan of salvation, which has been there since before the foundations of the earth. And uh, this passage and all that you shared certainly uphold all of that and, and give us the, um, the confidence that we have in this, this new great high priest. But I think you made some really good Boy, there are so many great points there, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but there's just so much that, uh, that, that's important for us to remember. We can't function without rest, but we rest so that we can work. And again, you made the clear distinctions there that it's not the work that we do that earns salvation, but that's what we were saved to do, and that's the rest. If we're operating out of that rest, that gives us the strength to, to work these things out. And that's what we need to rely on is in him and his finished work, not, not our own, not our own strength, not our own works. Yeah, I just think you did a great job of um, contrasting, well, not contrasting, but really including the idea that God, the sovereignty of God over all of it, he ordains not only the ends, 
but the means as well. And so that's why we don't neglect the imperatives, the commands for one another, to exhort one another daily. Although he has ordained the ends of who will enter into that rest, he ordains the means as well. And that is through the exhortation of, of one another and through the exhortation using the word of God, because it is what, it, like you said, is a double-edged sword. So it's important for us to see God's hand in all of it and to be balanced in um, seeing his hand in all of it and the, 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 the indicatives of what he's promised and the imperatives of what he calls us to do at the same time. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, how God works, obviously, um, and we see in James when he talks about our trials, and he says, count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trial for the testing of your faith, not the testing of your obedience. The Mm -hmm. testing of your faith is at stake. And that's what pleases God is when we trust him to do that which he has said he will do. And that's what the Hebrews lacked. They saw that he could do it, but they didn't trust him to continue doing it. And so they desired to return to their old life. And I think that's the difference. The testing of our faith is hard because we have to believe in something we can't see. We don't know what God is doing. But we have to trust him that he is actually doing something in our sanctification by giving us trials so that we, our faith is built as we trust him in and through them and ask him for wisdom in it. So. Anything else? Brother Craig, do you mind closing us in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your rest, for this perfect rest that has been given us by, by a great and holy high priest who can sympathize with us wholly and at the same time, Lord, uh, be blameless and perfect, uh, which we cannot, Lord. Help us to just uh, continue to place our faith in the finished work of Christ in all that we do. And Lord, we thank you for these reminders and these clear precepts being built upon the previous precepts uh, in Hebrews here that go back with roots to the beginning of, of your word. Lord, let us not neglect your word because your word is truth, and that is how we're sanctified, Lord. So thank you for all of this. Lord, bless our time and the rest of our worship together today. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.